You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome, everybody, to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive beatniks and creative renegades who are trying to find what makes them come alive, you know, without you know, going crazy and keeping their health and stuff. Anyway, I'm Leah Burkhart. I'm the hostess and, uh, you know, health coach, health educator, big old introvert. <laughs> and, uh, today, what I want to talk about is friction. I know that sounds super sexy, and you're probably going to be bummed. Well, maybe not. If, if you've been listening to me, then you're, you are you might be a fellow nerd, too. Um, I want to cover the full gambit of this word because it's nagged at my attention probably for a while, um, at least the last few months. And with everything that's going on, I feel like it's a theme that resonates when I use the word friction. Um, and the areas I want to pull from are ecological, political, interpersonal and intrapersonal. This keeps coming up in all of these areas. And the reason I'm so intrigued by it is as a highly sensitive person, or at least, you know, as myself, and I can say, I shouldn't speak for all those who identify as being highly sensitive to suggest that they all feel this way about conflict and friction. But most of the people that I know who are HSPs and or introverts they don't love conflict. They're not the, gee, can't wait to get out and bust some balls kind of folks. Um, and yet, there does seem to be value in the willingness to engage in it, and the willingness to face it, to maybe even use it. So I want to start with the definition. What does friction mean? So the classic definition is the resistance that one surface or object encounters when moving over and or against another. The other alternative is conflict or animosity caused by a clash of wills, temperaments, or opinions. So that's friction for you, babe. (laughs) Um, So to start with the ecological friction, because I just find it fascinating that when you look around Uh, everything is constantly changing. Everything is in motion. Everything, in other words, has some measure of friction. And again, as I've mentioned before, as a highly sensitive person and as someone who, well, it's not just that, a highly sensitive person who is a woman, a highly, highly sensitive person who is a pleaser, you know, friction is an uncomfortable experience and I don't like it manifested anywhere in my life. Uh, so, but where would we see it in the world around us? Let's, let's not even go into the realm of stories that are specifically human-based. And the first things that come to my mind are earthquakes, uh, forest fires. And what's fascinating to note, by the way, it, you know, if you're someone who wants to live in an area that doesn't have very much friction, doesn't have much chaos, doesn't have much going on, uh, you will also find yourself in an area that is lacking in beauty. Most of the areas that are the most startlingly beautiful have also endured the greatest amount of ecological violence. And I'm not using the word violence as in, you know, what human beings have done to the planet or what certain predators do to other predators. I'm not talking about, um, you know, a creature inflicting violence upon another creature. Uh, I'm talking about 
friction. You know, um, I'm talking about as an example, earthquakes. Earthquakes are, I mean, almost by definition, the, the world at large in friction. Um, it's the, we think of earthquakes as being uh, catastrophic. Uh, they can be extremely, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, it, earthquakes break stuff. Uh, oh, well, it'll come to me. But earthquakes are not just destructive. That was the word. They're not just destructive. They are that. But if you look at the larger, if you, if you zero out a little bit and take a look at, well, what is it that earthquakes are doing? In what way, why is this, why is the earth doing this? It turns out that there are also benefits to earthquakes. Um, they're the earth's way of releasing energy stored in plate tectonics as they move. And if plate tectonics couldn't move, the world would look an awful lot, that would look very different. There'd be no mountains. Um, there'd be no distinctly smaller oceans. Um, as plate tectonics move, it naturally cycles materials from the mantle of the earth. So the sea floor that new material creates harbors thousands of species of plants, um, animals, and they play important roles in human ecosystems um, by doing things like absorbing carbon dioxide and releasing oxygen. And, you know, without this movement that allows for earthquakes to happen, none of what makes life possible, at least for us, would come to a past. So as much as we might say, you know, earthquakes, God, there's so much, it's terrifying to be in the midst of one, and it is destructive, it does have value. Um, so if you're looking to avoid earthquakes, you'll probably find yourself out in the middle of a, very, a vast plain of not a whole lot going on. Same is true, by the way, you know, with fires, so forest fires. We cumulatively detest them like because we see so much life within those forests impacted in a negative way. But it turns out forest fires help restore forest ecosystems. They're an efficient and natural way for a forest to rid itself of dead or dying plant matter. It helps revitalize it. And so this theme keeps coming back. And I've identified this theme in multiple contexts, this concept of death and rebirth. In order for something new to come to pass, Something old has to be let go, uh, whether that's a metaphorical death. So in order for us to grow as you know, into adulthood, some part of our child self has to pass, has to die away. And so that, of course, led me to thinking about things like extinction. There were five extinctions that we know of uh, that have happened on our Earth so far. The, and I'm going to butcher the heck out of all of these. There's the Ordovican, the Devonian, the Perme Permian Triassic, the Triassic Jurassic, and the Cretaceous. And I could go into detail about what all of those were about and how all of those came to be. But in essence, uh, each one of them had its very unique signature. And it was a, I don't know exactly what defines an extinction. It, it doesn't mean mass as in every single creature on the planet dies, but just enough species die off for it to be labeled an extinction. And if you're curious about this concept, you might look into Elizabeth Colbert's book, The Sixth Extinction, where she makes the case that we are right smack dab in the middle of a sixth extinction. Massive quantities of species on the planet are dying out. That includes species on land as well as in the oceans. And I, my go-to reaction to that is uh, of horror. I don't want to be a part of making any extinction come to pass. And yet, interestingly enough, so I just finished reading Bill Bryson's Our, 
the, a short history of nearly everything. And he talks about, well, a little bit of everything, really. <laughs> he's, he's basically giving a, a bird's eye view of science or the history of it from, you know, cosmic history, you know, how the Big Bang all the way up to, uh, you know, where we currently are today. And by the time you get to the conclusion of this book, you realize just what a miracle it is that we exist at all. And whether that's a miracle in the sense of using, you know, a religious text to say it's miraculous, or if you're an atheist who doesn't believe there's anything outside of what we are looking at right here and now, it's still extraordinary. So many things had to go in just the, a very particular way for us to exist such as we do. Like the moon, uh, th there's talk that it's just a piece of the earth that got kicked out when a large enough meteor, you know, sliced it out of our, our system. And because that moon is gravitating around the earth, that's what's helping to provide some stability and, with regard to the earth's rotation as it's moving around the sun. I mean, Huh? <laughs> uh, and even all of the extinctions, the five extinctions that I just went over, all of those helped lead to the potential. It left a vacuum available for the likes of us, and in this case, so mammals and humans being among those mammals, to come to be. And the, the so on one hand, it's like, wow, we're really, this is an extraordinary opportunity, you know, just to exist at all. And he also goes into, you know, even if, I mean, clearly he goes over about, you know, what we're doing to our earth, to the planet, and he doesn't do it with a, a terrible amount of emotion. It's just very frank. Like, this is what we're doing, and this is the impact it's having. And this is how, and he also doesn't make any judgments uh, in terms of saying, we are ipso facto 100% the problem, and it is bad what we're doing. Because he even talks about some re evidence that suggests it's possible that the way like we're currently in the middle of an ice age, I know, right? Um, or I think we're at the tail end of one. And there's no knowing when the next one will kick in or not kick in. And in essence, what he was saying is what we're doing in terms of contributing to global climate change might actually be beneficial if what we're ultimately hoping for is to survive long term, or it could accelerate our extinction. <laughs> he said, but we just can't know because all of the ebbs and flows of our of our planet have been there, there's so many variables that contribute to what happens in an ecological level and so to think of that is really uh whew, there's sort of a sense of yikes we really don't know what's going on we only know a tiny little fraction of a tiny little fraction of how we contribute to what happens in our world and he then goes further to say if you think my dear humans, that you, whatever, like the worst damage we inflict could lead to zero life on the planet. You've got another thing coming. And he talks about different life forms that can survive in the deepest and darkest areas within our oceans. No light at all. And yet they found a way to survive. There's certain types of bacteria that have learned to feed off of what would be extremely poisonous yeah, gases for us. And so his point is not to say, ah, so no big deal. His point is simply to say, you know, it's a big deal for us. We probably want to pay very close attention to what it is we're doing and how we move in the world if we ultimately as a species want to survive long term. But even if we don't, he's kind of a, there's almost a, a scientific shrug. And not to say that he's making any sort of argument that human lives don't matter or that 
um, animal lives don't matter or that, you know, he's not trying to make any case that's like, well, none of it matters. What he's trying to say is all of it matters. And also we have no idea what's going to happen next. But I'm betting, says he, that life will find a way. Sort of like in that line from Jurassic Park where, you know, the character says, meh, life finds a way. So that brings me a little hope, but from a very zeroed out perspective, very much the sort of, hey, life is a series of cycles of death and rebirth and, you know, fires lead to rejuvenation. And you can even go and use sort of the woo-woo language of tarot cards and you can use, you know, like the, the sense of like the death card, meaning the end of something so that something new can be reborn. I can inhabit that space with an almost eerie sort of peace and calm uh, when I'm zeroed out and thinking about things philosophically, when I'm not thinking about my own egoic, personal, self-referential narrative. That's all well and good. However, (laughs) there is something to be said for the, you know, like the fact that I'm so eager to go into the space of, hey, you know, oh, blah, dee, oh, blah, da, (laughs) life goes on. There is a problem that comes with being that adaptable. And so on the while it is true that we need to kind of make a little room for the value of friction that can lead to even potentially something as horrific as death that then leaves room for new life. That's all well and good to have a philosophical and sort of bird's eye view of the of these cycles. But what about um Is there such a thing as being too flexible, too hands-off? My go-to response to some of the most challenging times I've gone through has been to behave sort of like water, to always just be flowing in the course of least resistance, which is not to say that I don't work hard, that I I, I avoid the resistance that comes with the need to, to exert a measure of will. Really what I'm saying here is I don't like to push hard against things and to cling to shores because I can see how in every facet of our lives, down to an ecological level, there is no resisting change. But can we be too adaptable? Can we be too addicted to detachment? I've brought this movie up a number of times before, but I think it's just, it serves as such a fabulous metaphor. The movie's Annihilation, uh, Natalie Portman is the star, and in the movie, some extraterrestrial something has come to our planet, and it's spreading. And in, by spreading, it's sort of bubbling out and has created a rather small, sizable enough for people to walk through it, but, uh, you know, not so sizable that it's encompassing all of the planet, but an area that when it starts to expand, whatever is within it, goes through rapid changes on a cellular level. And when explorers go through this space, they're seeing alligators who have the teeth of sharks. They're seeing plants that are shaped like humans. They're seeing insects that they've never seen before. They're seeing like, so they're, and the changes are happening so rapidly that there's a lot of instability. And even they, the explorers themselves who move through it, start seeing that their cells, on, like if you take a prick from their from the blood and they look at what's going on on a cellular level, their bodies are starting to show signs of change and adaptation that is making them so fluid, so dynamic, so responsive to their environment, that now there's a real risk of, uh, of not maintaining enough stability to maintain one's sense of self 
and a few of the characters like lose it that you know they can feel the 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 fluidity that is there like there's something within them that's just like i i don't feel solid anymore and i like to use that as a metaphor because i can i can say for myself i have a tendency to avoid friction and conflict to such a degree and move toward ever letting go always just hey man you can't really like you you can't know the future you've just got to go with it man just just chill just just be cool because I've had so much change happen in my life and that is a skill I've had to acquire. I've had to acquire the skill of not attaching to things. I've had to acquire the skill of looking at my environment, not insisting that my environment do what I bid it to do, not insisting that the people in my environment respond the way that I want them to respond. And that's a great skill, but it can become a kind of patterned set of habits and behaviors. And that leads, let me, of course, you know, again, I'm still in that theme of friction and when might that be of value? That, of course, leads me to think about things. The most heinous example of friction that I can think of is war. But it turns out war has some benefits. So there was an article in the Washington Post by Jeff Gao, G-U-O, apologies, Jeff, if I mispronounced it. Uh, and in his article, it, he made the case that people who endure, like violence comes with a measure of some benefit. People who endure violence tend to be more trusting. I'm going to say that again. People who endure more violence tend to be more trusting. Uh, and in terms of how this was measured, because we live in the United States of America where we have to measure everything, they were given a number of games that sort of measure collaboration. So the games are set up so that you can make a decision that helps the whole community or a decision that helps you as an individual and if everyone makes the quote-unquote selfish decision, everyone loses. But if everyone makes this, you know, but if, it, but, but maybe the individual in question doesn't know that. It's sort of like a, hey, do you want to just be out for yourself or do you want to risk the potential that everyone will work together and everyone benefits more as a result? People who have endured more violence are more likely to collaborate. They're more willing to collaborate. Um, they tend to be more active in their communities they're more willing to be leaders in their communities. So at the end of this article, though, he does have a few parenthetical sort of caveats and side notes. Amongst them, he said, hey, but wait, this is especially true within communities. So as soon as there's someone outside of that community, that person is held with a level of suspicion. But it's almost like the violence that's happening insulates the people within a community such that they bond together. Which should make sense given, I mean, from the perspective of a health educator and as someone who's constantly studying like behaviors and, and sort of how our bodies respond to stress, I happen to know that on an individual level, when human beings are stressed, they produce cortisol and adrenaline, which I've mentioned I don't know how many times now, but they also produce oxytocin. So the cortisol, the adrenaline, that's what pumps us up. You know, we're ready. Let's go, boys. Let's... Let's go fight or let's go flee. Oxytocin, though, is the bonding hormone. It's the tend and befriend. It's the let me pull you in, dear neighbor. I've got this. I will protect you. I will bond with you. And so what this writer seemed to identify happening on the macro scale within communities makes sense when you consider what happens in the micro scale, as in individually. So if you have a violent set of circumstances, a community will band together 
and ferociously defend one another. So the adrenaline, the cortisol, it's like, let's go. They're going to defend. They're going to aggress. And at the same time, protect. That's a pretty extraordinary thing for a human being to be capable of. But again, the sort of caveat there is, but wait, this is part of why in times of peace, we kind of jostle selfishly amongst ourselves. But in times of conflict, we become instinctively more cooperative, though this is harder when there is civil war. So that was another caveat. When it's a civil war, it can sort of lead to, um, if we've had a civil war, the likelihood that another will follow is greater for the most part. So then leaving aside civil war for now, what about just civil unrest? So this is another kind of friction. Can we really say that civil unrest is always bad? And anyone who would try and tell me so, I would happily go to, you know, it's like, all right, let's get in the ring. All, you know, just some intellectual boxing. And, you know, in terms of quotations from people that were inspiring leaders, examples of quotations from MLK, so Martin Luther King Jr. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So these are, like, we must not allow our creative protest to degenerate into physical violence. So here he is making the case that, you know, not to go to war, not to go to full throttle violence, but to be willing to defend and to uh, hold accountable our communities. And he said, here's the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weakness of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. And finally, every man of, the hum- of humane convictions must decide on the protest that best suits his convictions. But we must all protest. So Martin Luther King Jr. was walking this very fine line. He was exemplifying friction at its best. So in essence, he's saying... We cannot tolerate injustice. You cannot sit idle. So he would be able to say to someone like me, listen, babe, there are times in life where you've got to take a stand. You're going to have to pick a side. I get that you like standing on the fence. In fact, I get that you might even like being the fence. But knock it off. Sometimes you've got to land somewhere. But he does not go so far as to say, let's fight to the death. Let's go to physical violence. He stops there and he says, no, no, be firm but not so aggressive that you cause harm. And when he talks about compassion, it's like be willing to hear out the quote-unquote opposition party. Because if you do that friction that gets created from the heat of uh, disagreement between you, if you're both willing to be mature about it, can lead to growth, can lead to both of you profiting from the wisdom that the other has to offer. And finally, if you think you can avoid protest, you're wrong. Because if you have any kind of humanity within you, if you have any kind of convictions whatsoever, at one point or another, you will be protesting. It's just you have to figure out what that is and how you want it to look. But we all protest on some level. And uh, in terms of the theme of friction, David Thoreau writes, let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine. So I've gone from ecological friction It turns out if you want to live in a stunningly beautiful place, you're going to be living somewhere that's endured a lot of violence and friction. When you're living in a place with a lot of mountain ranges, uh, access to oceans, uh, lakes, you know, when you, wherever you see beauty, you are standing in the remnants of a lot of 
like destruction and uh, violence on an ecological level. So if you want to avoid violence ecologically, you'll also avoid beauty, which feels like such a beautiful metaphor for the like an emotional space that we occupy as human beings on this planet. You know, if you avoid always having to take a stand, if you always go the route of least resistance, if you always avoid uncomfortable emotions and experiences or conversations, you will have a more comfortable life, but it will also be less beautiful and potentially far less valuable. So when David Thoreau says, you know, Henry David Thoreau, pardon me, let your life be a counter friction to stop the machine. It's like, live your life as you and let that be the friction that stops masses of people from patterned behavior that ultimately can lead to, you know, a lot of destruction. In other words, show, live a life of integrity so that you're not just being a part of a herd. And to move aside into the realm then of, well, before I, I go too far with that, I'm, I'm also thinking of a conversation that I had with a really good friend of mine, and it was regarding our current political strife that we're enduring. And I was sort of making a, a comment about, um, oh, what was it? The defund the police concept. And to my friend, I said, you know, that's the worst marketing imaginable. And I know that what they really mean by that is let us reallocate some of the resources currently going to police and put it into an, a space that is more appropriate for the various gradations of uh, needs that our community has. So as an example, you know, police officers are basically called upon for a full range of uh, conflicts and challenges in the community. And they may not be the appropriate person to call upon if you're talking about someone who's in, who's in the throngs of a drug addiction and, they have, and they're high and they're unstable. Maybe a police officer could be one person who's called, but do, is there an expert who knows about the drug, you know, about this person, about mental health? Is there, are there other people who are equipped to handle a lot of these situations that, with a degree of subtlety that police officers may not be trained in? And what I mean by this is not to say, oh, those police officers, they can't do it. It's coming more from the same place that I feel about the medical, uh, the Western medical industry. You know, we all have this sense that all doctors are all knowing. They are not. They are very intelligent. They've worked extremely hard to get into the positions they currently occupy. They know a lot about a lot of things, but they are not experts on all things health and wellness. Ask a doctor about nutrition and very likely it will be the case that they don't know a whole lot about nutrition. Why? Because they can't be experts on everything, people. It's not fair. <laughs> they had to learn an absurd quantity of information about the body and about medications and about different treatment options. And no, they didn't learn every nook and cranny about nutrition as well. Like there's just too much content and information to really fully integrate all of it. So where do you go if you want to hear more information about nutrition? You go to a dietitian or a nutritionist. You know, we, we expect our doctors to be coaches, nurses, psychologists, experts in all of the things. And unfortunately, we train them to move in the world as though they are experts because we want them to exude confidence. And that feels good to us when we feel like, okay, a competent person has walked into the room. Now I will speak with someone who knows what they're talking about. That's all well and good, except that it can be dangerous when you have the combination of a human who's not actually an expert in a specific subset of the field and who now is being trained to pretend he or she is. 
that's kind of what I see happening with the police force. They are having to, you know, be the answer to so many different types of calls that they are not equipped to answer all the time. They're phenomenal at a number of skills, but they can't be experts in everything that's related to conflict resolution. It, it just isn't, it, it's not really realistic. And so I understand when people say, you know, we're giving an awful lot of resources to a very specific subset and they're not showing themselves to be using those resources as effectively as perhaps we all could decide could be used better. And it's like, hey, I mean, I'm, I'm a progressive person. I identify as liberal. It's sort of like, yeah, that sounds, that makes sense. But when you package it in something that says defund the police, I immediately back up and say, whoa, and when I see things like abolish the police, it's like, mm, okay, listen, I understand that the police have inflicted pain and suffering upon many. Like I, there are a number of people who have endured tremendous pain because of the actions or lack thereof of this industry, I'll call it, and the police force. But at the end of the day, if someone is breaking into my home and I call 911, what, what happens if I've abolished the police? Like who will I call upon then when I'm in need? And I understand what they're, where they're going for when they say, well, hey, it's clearly not worked. It's such an entrenched system. We just need to scrap it. And where I felt like, you know, when I came from in college, I was able to have that mentality wrote like that sort of like, nope, let's, let's just scrap it. I remember in college, I was in a, I mean, it was a class that talked about feminism and politics and it, we had a debate and in the debate, it was, the question was, should feminists make it their goal to reach equality for women with men? So should women need to be equals with men in our current climate? And I was on the side that was saying, yes, that's our goal. And the other side was no, because there's something fundamentally wrong with the ruler you're using to assess equality. So basically, on one hand, you have liberal feminists who are saying there's nothing inherently wrong with the system. We just want more access for more people. You know, we would like the other 50 percent of the population to have equal opportunity. But the other side is saying, no, 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 no. This system was built by and for men. So it is inherently like ill-equipped to navigate and manage the needs of men and women both. So we've got to dismantle the whole thing and start over. And when I was in college, I was very much that, even though I was on the side of the liberal, liberal feminist, like I was assigned to that side, and I argued it well, and I won that debate because I really believed in the other side's case. And when, you know, if we want to win a debate, argue for, you know, you know the quote-unquote enemy better than you know your own arguments. And I knew them all. But when asked at the end of the debate, how do I really feel? I really felt like we needed to dismantle and start over. And so, but as I've aged, you know, as I've got amassed more experiences, I've developed into this space of more moderate ideas. You know, I, when I look around me, it's like, but the bones are good. I don't think we need to dismantle all of it. And anyway, what would be the cost of that dismantling? What would we lose in that process? What would everyone here have to sacrifice to make that a reality? And so that's what comes forth for me when I hear, let's defund the police. It's like, oh my God, no, I, I know what you're saying, but you're saying it so poorly. Why? And I, I say all of this to my very good friend and she hurt, hears me and she said, well, Leah, people are in pain. 
And I think it's wise to get curious about why they would want to be more excitatory or, or sort of inflammatory. Why would they go there? Why would they feel like we should abolish the police? What has led them to that conclusion? And what is the alternative that they're proposing? And of course, in my view, I was coming from the space of, yes, I, I get that, but it just feels like the stakes are really high right now. I mean, given where we're at, and this is my personal opinion, this is no, I am not in any way saying that anyone who is a supporter of Trump is inherently bad or anyone who is anti-Trump is inherently good. I am personally not a fan. So there's my bias. Um, and it's, to me, my response was, okay, yes, but inflammatory um, phrases like that are only going to lead potential allies, so moderates, to run for Trump because they'd rather have the devil they know than this mysterious unknown that could lead to the disruption of their entire lives. People don't like that level of uh, destruction in order to reach change. That's too much to ask in our current climate when everyone's capacity is so low. People are already fearful. They're feel fearful for their jobs, for their livelihoods, for their homes, for their lives in some cases, you know, due to COVID. This is not the time to be breaking apart potential allies or to be, you know, burning bridges. This is the time to be building as many bridges as possible to figure out where we align so that we can work together to create something, not just destroy things. And again, she responded with, well, I hear you, but it's not our responsibility to get them to repackage what it is they're feeling in a way that's more palatable for the so-called moderates. You know, what was the moderate argument in the 60s? was probably, hey, take it one step at a time, you know, just don't be so pushy, don't be so this. And and now we look back and we think, yeah, obviously you should have been pushy. That was ridiculous what you were experiencing back there. But at the time, what would the moderates have said? To which I could only reply, huh, valid point. So in that conversation, she then says, you know, when people have been in this much pain for this long and you're pushing people and siloing them and like there's just, I, I think it's better to get curious than to immediately assume that the folks that are making the case for these changes don't know what they're talking about or don't know what it is they have to offer or that what they have to offer isn't a better option. Um, if you look at the history of the police force, and again, this was my friend speaking, she said, you know, you'll find that it's, it's rooted in... Uh, helping to aid in the capture of slaves. So if that's where its history and its roots stem from, perhaps there is something inherently unworkable in it. And so it's, I'm not saying she was right and that I concede or that I'm right and that I therefore shouldn't concede, but it did force me to pause. I thought, oh. And even of course, when I was saying to her, but my God, if this, what if this leads to a reelection of this man? Like, whether or not he is or is not doing the right things. And I would make the strong case that, you know, I, I could lead a passionate podcast episode um, just by virtue of you know, laying out grievances for this administration. But I don't want to go there. <laughs> um, other podcasts, perhaps. But what if he gets reelected? And part of the reason for that is because we couldn't be more discerning and strategic about what we decide to like, put our energy into. And she said that very well might happen. And I quite frankly think that it would probably lead, I mean, another another four years of this, 
it very well would lead to some version of a civil war. And, you know, that wouldn't necessarily look like the kind of civil wars that we've fought in the past, but maybe it's a war of wills, maybe it's a war of finances, maybe it's a technological war, maybe it's a, you know, war can manifest in many, many different ways. But, yeah, that might happen. And, of course, my immediate response is, no! And But then I think, well, I mean, I don't want that, but I'm a healthy white female who hasn't been, whose life hasn't been terribly disrupted by the system. And when I have engagements with police officers, they've been predominantly positive for the most part. That's been my life experience. And so when I look at the system, the way that it's built and what has come forth from it, and when I read books like that from, you know, uh, Steven Pinker, Enlightenment Now, where you see the trajectory of where we've come from and how much better our world is now than it was a hundred years ago. I mean, just all across the board. It's sort of like, I don't know that I want to dismantle it all. But then I remember that when I zero out big enough and I see what earthquakes create and when I see forest fires and I think, oh, interesting. Maybe there's value in being the person who says, no, I'm not interested in your micro benefits. You know, I'm not interested in hearing about how not to make better the enemy of best. I'm over it. You will listen to me. I am taking a stand. And this is how, if you are uncomfortable, I no longer care. I don't like that uh, way of walking into the world because I find that even when, you know, because in this conversation with my friend, she said, you might want to consider the fact that, um, well, I'll back up a little bit again. I mentioned to her what uh, Ben Shapiro, who, quite frankly, I disagree with about 95% of everything he says. Uh, but I appreciate hearing him because as a cons- conservative thinker, uh, he's a brilliant man. It gives me an opportunity to absorb content from the side of the political spectrum that I disagree with in a way that I can tolerate. It's like, oh, okay, now I I disagree with you, but I see where you're coming from. And he made the case that, hey, you know, the reason why the LGBTQ community ultimately became successful in uh, expanding their rights in our country was because, it was not because they were violent. You know, it was not because they were saying America is anti-gay, anti-whatever. He said they did it. Not by burning the flag, but by pointing to the flag and saying, we're not living up to the principles upon which this country was founded. This country was founded on the following principles. Equality of opportunity, you know, the pursuit of happiness, and so on and so forth. And so they over and over again said to the American people, all we are asking for is that which this country promised everyone. And that, said he, is how you win a political protest. That is how you move mountains. You don't do it by making enemies of any other sides. You do it by recruiting people onto yours. You do it by showing people over and over again, do you, like, we all deserve to have this. And it's really hard to argue against that. Even me personally, when I remember being faced with someone who was, I don't know if I'd say homophobic, but it I mean, we were talking about the legal right to get married for all individuals, and that included those who are homosexual. 
and she was reluctant or, or averse. She, she wasn't uh, aggressive in her, her uh, stances, like, absolutely not. But she was sort of of the mind that, well, no, I don't, I don't think they should. And in talking with her and sort of teasing it out and saying, okay, but do you understand why they would want this? And do you understand that by virtue of being able to get married, they are given a number of rights that just coupled people don't get to have? Because in our government... We privilege married couples above just partnered people in that if I'm married to someone, I can go, like I have special privileges when my beloved is in the hospital and in terms of visiting hours, in terms of my ability to help them navigate their finances. Like there's all of these privileges that are bestowed upon married couples that just coupled partners don't have. And in hearing that and me getting to the end by saying, can you understand why in a country if you privilege only this cohort of people, you ultimately are going to need to do one of two things. Give that option to all people or take away those privileges so that no one benefits and just say, okay, that's it. If you get married, that's great. That's your business, but that's a religious affair and the government is having no part of that. And by the end of that conversation, she was able to say, huh, you know what? I do see your point. I hadn't thought that through. And that's why the LGBTQ community was so successful. And that was, again, what Dave Shapiro, or Dave, Ben Shapiro was arguing. Like, they did it by saying, hey, look at the principles that this country was founded on. Do you really believe that all people shouldn't have a right to that? And so he was saying then that the way that uh, the protests are sort of breaking out now, it, it, specifically when it's things like defund the police, that's not... Um, that doesn't recruit people onto your side, it divides your side from the other. Versus, on the counterexample, Black Lives Matter. Now that is a message that's brilliant because you're not saying white lives don't matter, although I can't tell you how many white people I've heard like, all lives matter. It's like, oh my God, like, oh, are you a child? Like, yes, obviously. But it's a positive comment. I don't mean positive like good versus negative that's bad. I mean positive as in uh, something to move toward as opposed to something to move away from. They're not saying, um, you know, America is inherently anything. They're, what they're saying is, hey, we matter too. And we are going to insist, demand that you look at us. Look at what you're doing. Look at this treatment. We are done being nice about it. Look at this. We matter, and we need to see you prove that you know that too. That's powerful. But defund the police, not so much. All of that is to say, I'm not trying to make a case that um, defunding the police is good or bad or whatever. The important piece of all of this lies in the conversation that I had with my friend, who, by the time I got out of that conversation, I was chewing on that all through the day, woke up today, and I'm still chewing on it now. That conversation created some friction. So even on an interpersonal level, just she and I talking, I'm now rethinking my views on this concept of, well, maybe there is something to be said for being willing to be kind of not just feisty, but willing to be even um, divisive. Because as much as it may be true that the LGBTQ community became successful by virtue of you know recruiting people onto their side and joining people together, it started from a lot of violent protests from people who were angry and who demanded attention. And maybe those actions did not result in the success that they needed. And maybe ultimately they pivoted and got more strategic. 
But at first, it was anger, it was frustration, and it was destruction that got their, got attention. And maybe this too, like that divisive action, maybe this too is the beginnings of that. Maybe ultimately this evolves into something that is more strategic. But right now, we've got a lot of people who are in a tremendous pain and uncertainty and confusion. And they're all saying, you know what? The system that we've got right now, it's not working and it hasn't been working. And we're done being polite about it. And I don't mean it's okay to be destructive and to throw, like to, to cause harm to small businesses. But what I mean is the messaging being divisive. When you, when you put up a sign saying, you know what? No, defund it, abolish it. It's not working. Maybe that's not the right answer, but maybe there's some power in even being willing to say it. Because maybe you do have to go so far as to be divisive to get people's attention so that a real conversation can start to come forth from that. I don't know about right now, but these are all examples of friction. This is like this is extremely uncomfortable, the times that we're in right now. Extraordinarily painful even. And it's all causing friction. Will it be good or won't it be good? I mean, if you think about friction as it relates to civil unrest, I would venture to argue that the friction that was caused in the 1960s with the civil rights movement, that led to phenomenal changes. Changes that needed to happen. Changes that I personally benefit from. If those people back then were unwilling to be impolite, I would have fewer opportunities. I would not be sitting here speaking into a microphone that I purchased from my own funds that I acquired from a job I get to work in that stems from a career that I've personally built. None of that would have been available to me. So, yeah. Anyway. (laughs) But what about on an individual level? Are there benefits to friction and to conflict? I think most people would argue yes. So in that example of the conversation I had with my friend, that was a kind of friction. But I heard her and she heard me. And, you know, like her sort of thesis statement was, who are we to try and tell anyone how to package the messaging of their pain? And she's got a valid point. And in response, from my end, what I told her was, um, it reminded me of a, a line in the movie, Lincoln, where Lincoln is speaking with one of the representatives who is more, he was feisty, he's a progressive, and he's not willing to settle for the 13th Amendment as it's written. He wants to go farther, not just abolish slavery, but he wants full equality. He wants more, and he's not willing to be polite about it. But the problem is he's so feisty and so disagreeable, and so uh, he makes people so uncomfortable that it force, it sort of pushes people who would otherwise be allies toward the more conservative side. And I say conservative, and in that time, Democrats were conservatives and Republicans were liberals, but anyway. And so Lincoln has a sit-down with this man. Um, Again, and they are allies. They're both the part of the Republican Party. They're both um, abolitionists. And Lincoln says, you know, a compass, I I learned when I was surveying it, it'll, it'll point you to true north from where you're standing. But it's got no advice about the swamps and deserts and chasms that you'll encounter along the way. If in pursuit of your destination you plunge ahead, heedless of obstacles, and achieve nothing more than to sink in a swamp, what's the use of knowing true north? And so, as I said, my friend's point was, 
we, it is not our role to package it someone else's pain so that it's more palatable for quote unquote potential allies. And my response was, yeah, but if you plunge ahead and you're not strategic and you don't heed the obstacles, what's the point of knowing true north? Like, if you don't get what it will, like, if, why are you making better the enemy of best? And both of us, I think, walked away from that conversation thinking, I see both sides of this. That is where friction led to all of the kinds of things that we would hope would come forth from that friction. You know, personal growth, as an example. Like, I grew a little bit from that because I walked away going, yeah, I'm being pretty damn arrogant right now. Me, the little, you know, sissy lala white girl who hasn't had real pain in the way that these other individuals truly have. So anyway, in terms of that interpersonal dynamic then, having conflicts open our eyes to new ideas. It opened mine. Um, creates an opportunity to verbalize needs. We both did. Um, it teaches flexibility. I had to get much more flexible in my view of this situation. It teaches us to listen. It was very easy for me to listen to her because I love her. And I think, I don't know if it was easy for her to listen to me, but she loves me. And so we were both coming from a place of mutual respect. It teaches us patterns of behavior. I was able to see in real time, oh, look at the way I'm, I'm habituated to think. Loads or leads to solutions. Um, it allows us to practice communication skills, helps us to set limits and boundaries, and creates the uh, opportunity for us to develop personal growth and insight. So that's what conflict, you know, amongst ourselves can lead to. That friction, that heat, can lead to growth and connection and bonding, and and in my case, gratitude for this person who's willing to put her hand up and say, you know, you missed something. You've got some blind spots you might want to take a look at. That might lead to thinking that being flexible, then, is always good. Which, of course, having that ability to be flexible in how I think and feel, of course it's good. It's led to our survival as a species. And, And it leads to the ability to make dynamic change more effective. We can make changes, we can make pivots that work for ourselves and for our community. All of that's true. However, that, you know, so that's one lesson, you know, being flexible so that I can absorb the life, the lessons that my friend has to give. That's a good lesson, but there is nevertheless value in being firm. That, if anything, was her message to me. You know, these folks that are making these, these uh, grievances known and trying to put together a solution, they're being firm and they're saying, no, you will listen. Like this is, I'm done being polite. And there is value in that. You know, as people who are rigid, have a level of moral rigidity, we have a tendency to trust them more. You know, like if people are standing up for their convictions. So in terms of the benefits of being firm, of being unwilling to relent, it can lead to, you know, the ability to set appropriate boundaries. You know, the ability to state your needs and feelings to others so that you're clear about the, you know, what's useful and what's not useful. People know your mind and can respond accordingly. It's the same kind of concept as, um, you know, the the benefits of hierarchies. Like when you have hierarchies and structures built in place, those hierarchies can, we often feel kind of ambivalent about them, but it creates defined structures for communication, um, identifies places where duplication may exist, uh, allows for us to specialize in a particular role. 
and it allows us to organize, you know, and, and discern who should be accountable, you know, put who the like the people in power, we can, we can hold them account, accountable more easily. So there's value in being rigid and having structure. As I mentioned earlier in this podcast, having so much adaptability sort of is in the, the movie Annihilation. If we're so adaptable and responsive to our environment that we're constantly behaving in a fluid manner, that's unstable. It's untenable. It's not going to work. So we're in a position right now where we're trying, in terms of the friction that we're looking at, like community versus individualism, flexibility versus structure. And anyway, the, it, it, all of that is also leading me to think about internal, so intra-personal <laughs> um, friction. So in order for any of us to move in the world effectively, we need to, on an individual level, be able to balance between being structured enough and rigid enough, rigid enough to, I, to communicate with people about what my needs are, what my wants are, but flexible enough to pivot and to change my ideas and be willing to, you know, uh, open up to other possibilities so that collaboration can take place. And you know, so there was someone, I forget the gentleman's name, but they, he put together five big personality traits. And we are some amalgamation of each one of these. We, we fall on a spectrum of each of these. And the five traits are introversion versus extroversion. So you fall on the spectrum of that. Agreeableness versus disagreeable. Conscientious. Openness to new experiences. And neuroticism. And I remember hearing from Jordan Peterson um, that conservatives have a tendency to be rank high on conscientiousness, but low on openness to new experiences. And highly liberal people tend to be very open to new experiences, but maybe less conscientious. And so, and, and again, obviously this isn't, you know, paint by number all people, but trending. And when I look at how I'm built, you know, I'm highly introverted. I'm absurdly agreeable. And that might sound really nice, but Really, all that means is uh, my willingness to want to uh, uh, like agree with and, and be pleasing to others. I'm very conscientious, as well as open to new experiences, and also neurotic. <laughs> so, um, so in terms of how friction can affect me on an individual level, I in yoga, there's a word called tapas. And uh, no, my foodies, uh, don't get excited. I'm not talking about the overpriced small plates that you find in Spanish restaurants. I'm talking about a Sanskrit concept. Uh, and the, the significance of the word tapas, translated is loosely, is heat. As in the heat that burns off impurities. So in yoga philosophy, whatever our habituated, like we come into this world with a kind of constitution. In my case, as an example, I, I was I came into this world with a more sensitive nervous system. And that sensitive nervous system primes me to be less enamored with conflict because conflict is highly arousing. It's not a comfortable experience. I also came into this world as an introvert. Um, I, I, my constitution is already geared toward being rather agreeable and conscientious um, and open and neurotic. I have a kind of constitution built. And from that constitution, the sort of the hardware of it, I've also started to amass a series of experiences. And those experiences have helped inform me. Okay, what happens to me when I do this? Oh, I get that consequence. Okay, well, maybe I'll do this differently. And through that trial and error, I start to build a set of habits that continues to 
position me in, in ways that lead to less suffering and more pleasure. So as an introvert, if I continue to experience time alone and I keep getting the reward of more energy, I'll start to build habits around spending more and more time alone. If I'm an agreeable person and I'm also a highly sensitive person and I keep experiencing conflict and also the lack thereof, I'm going to realize, well, conflict is crappy and I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. I'm going to keep avoiding it. And then I get the benefit of no conflict. As a conscientious person, when I work really hard and as I'm naturally predisposed to doing that, if I get rewarded by a system that rewards hard work, well, then I'm going to continue to do that because I keep getting rewarded. In terms of being open to new experiences, when I'm out there and I'm willing to pivot and I lose a job and, hey, no big deal, I'll get a new one and I'll try new skills and I'll learn new things, I get rewarded with praise or with new opportunities. And as far as my neuroticism, you know, I don't, it, the fact that I'm as neurotic and sort of like detail oriented in some respects at least uh, has led to my being vigilant about my steps or about um, my nutrition or about, you know, those sorts of things. And that might lead to longevity. So it's like I have this constitution and then mixed with that are a set of experiences and they all lead me to a kinds of patterns of behavior that become um, useful except when they're not. And so in yoga, it's as much about identifying one's strengths but recognizing, wait, is the thing you're doing coming from a place of clarity or is it coming from a place of patterning? Because if it's just patterning, that might not be appropriate. There are times when it's appropriate to be disagreeable. And to be disagreeable, to be clear, just means willing to do and say things that are not necessarily popular. A lot of very disagreeable people have been phenomenal leaders. Teddy Roosevelt was probably very, very disagreeable <laughs> um, because he just didn't care what people thought of him. Or if he did care, he didn't uh, exude that. So the willingness to do things that aren't popular and that grade against people, we need those folks. And in terms of, um, I, I'm sort of, I'm conscientious, but I can, that can lead me into a place of being kind of a workaholic. Um, I'm open to new experiences, but that can lead me into the realm of maybe being a doormat or not being clear about what I want because I'm so adaptable. Think again to that movie Annihilation that people don't know where they stand with me. This has been feedback I've been given on more than one occasion. And so that brings me back to tapas. It's about being clear. What is it that you're doing? And are you coming from a place of clarity, from a space of knowing that this is the appropriate course of action? Or are you coming from a place of patterning as in avoiding things that make you uncomfortable? And so I've practiced, as a result of this, getting a little bit more, uh, uh, well, I've practiced being more disagreeable. I've practiced going out and spending more time with people. I mean, not so much recently because of COVID, but right before that really kicked in, I was going to more in-person meetups. And I was intrigued to discover that there are circumstances in, by which when I'm with people, I recharge. Typically, it's with a very specific type of person. Um, the, the person that I happen to be roommating with is one of the, those people where it's neutral to positive. I spend time with, the more time I spend with them, the more charged I feel. Either that or I feel neutral. It's like, oh, well, that's very interesting. And it's because we both know how to respect each other's uh, desire for you know, space. And, and like there's this, the way we navigate just so happens to leave me feeling more charged up. Whereas there are other relationships I have where as much as I may love them, 
it's depleting. I lose energy the more time I spend with them. And for some people, it doesn't matter. Spending time with people they love one way or the other will always be a recharge. For me, that isn't true. It's very uh, distinct. And there are some people, like I went to certain meetup groups when they were small and when there was when they were timed and it was really clear, okay, this is what I'm spending my time doing and then we're going to leave at this time. Then it was great. But when it was a networking event, not so much. So I was, it was leading me to question my assumptions about how quote unquote introverted I really am. And when I do things that are unpopular, but are nevertheless me, I'm experimenting with being disagreeable. When I am, you know, forcing myself to stay in bed for eight to 10 hours a day because of the prescription that was given by Elaine Aaron for HSPs, my conscientious little being wants to get up and run and, you know, get a podcast going and do all of this hard work. But my more neurotic self has, you know, so I'm playing with these things. I'm going, oh, maybe there's value in being quote unquote lazy because maybe that leads to more of a recharge so that I can be more efficient. I can be conscientious, but I can keep that on a leash. I don't have to be a slave to my conscientious nature. And that leads me to start asking questions like, what kind of work do I want to do? How much work do I want to do? Like I just got done with an interview with a part for a part-time wellness coaching position that I could potentially marry with my health education role. So, and I'd have two part-time roles and I love having multiple income streams and maybe I could position myself into more opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not jumping at it right away, but I'm looking at it. I'm going, that could be a possibility. What kind of work do I want to do? How much do I want to invest in my private practice? I'm also looking at the kinds of conversations I've been having. What kind of friendships do I want to keep? How do I want to behave in those friendships? I'm noticing myself gravitate towards some people and away from others. I'm noticing myself behave with more firmness and getting clearer about when am I uh, feeling like I'm a boundary is being encroached. And even how I go about building romantic partnerships. Um, in my in my experience with regard to how I engage in romantic partnerships, the feedback I've been given is that I have a tendency to fold into a relationship. Um, I lose myself in it. And I understood why my friend said that. Um, the reality is, in that particular person's case, it's more that I only have the capacity to, you know, like there are certain people I can spend time with, but I need to feel charged up to be able to do that. And um, there have been many times in life when I just haven't had that energy. And that's also correlated with times when I've been in relationships that were both good and bad. Nevertheless, so even, you know, take all of that out. It is true that it's easy for me to immerse myself in a romantic relationship. It just is. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, the hormones, the excitement, the, all of it. And so this time around, you know, I'm, it, as I navigate, navigated through it, I started to challenge my assumptions about how I, what it is I wanted in a romantic partnership. I started to go out and date multiple people at once. I thought maybe my assumptions about me being this sweet-tempered, monogamous creature, you know, maybe those were false. And engaging in those ways created a lot of internal friction. So that's going back to this concept of tapas. Like every time that I am disagreeable, that's heat, that's that friction. Every time that I try something new, I mean, I'm dating multiple people and being remaining detached and not connecting with any one person, there's that friction because this is uncomfortable, it's new. As it turns out, 
I am by no means someone that does well in relationships that are highly, you know, like uh, detached and there's multiples like, oh my God, it was a nightmare. I'm not the kind of person who should be dating multiple people. That's a terrible idea, but I would not have known that if I hadn't gone out there and just tried it out. That friction helped um, burn off the, like a number of things, like the, the more recent relationship that I got out of. No, it wasn't comfortable, but it burned out. It was like a forest fire for me because it forced me to t- sort of burn out all of these assumptions, all of this dead debris in my life that I just hadn't really faced, and it forced me to face it. And so now here I am in the process of falling for a new person, and I've determined I am not, as it turns out, as I mentioned before, a polyamorous type um, or a sex-in-the-city Samantha. I am <laughs> um, a bit more of a Charlotte in that respect. I am still kind of a romantic. And however, as I'm falling, as I'm like, you know, moving into this space with this person that I'm becoming deeply enamored with and excited about and um, all of the good things happening, I'm still moving in it with a level of discernment I haven't moved into before. That feels kind of remarkable to to come into a space and feel all of the feels, you know, all of the ways in which that infatuation can light up the system and to to sink into it further. I'm being more honest. I'm being more decisive. I'm being more clear. Like, no, no, I want you. In the past, I've been very much like, well, you know, if you want me. <laughs> and now I'm being more willing to say, no, 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 no. <laughs> I want you in my life. And you're like, what are you doing next weekend? I'm spending time with you. <laughs> like, and you don't have to. Obviously, if you want to leave, you can. But I'm being assertive enough to say, yeah, but I'm, I'm letting you know my preferences. That's huge for me. And talk about creating that friction. And at the same time, though, I'm not allowing that to inform or I'm not allowing that to create any assumptions about a future. So it's this very interesting dynamic where in the past I was very loosey-goosey and like, I'll just go with the flow of it. If you I'll stay for as long as you want me around, but never mind my needs. And so and then I would create these stories about a future of perfection and love and romance. And I allowed that to happen over and over. And this time I've sort of turned it on its head. I'm diving in deeper into the experience and saying, no, I am attached. I'm willing to put myself out there and say, I am not willing to just sort of go with the flow of it. I do want to make my preferences known. But at the same time, I'm letting go of what that means for a future because I've watched the ebb and flow of that come and go. And I know enough about life, the life and death of of an organism as well as the life and death of a relationship. And the combination of those two things is creating that, that heat, that friction, but it's also positioning me in a, in a way that allows me to fully absorb the experience in a beautiful way and not uh, lose myself because I'm, I'm equal parts completely allowing myself to experience the joy of falling for someone and also not tying myself to a story of how that needs to look which opens up all the possibilities. There's the possibility of a future forever. Well, not forever, because, you know, organisms die. But, you know, the like this very long term, and there's the possibility that it ends tomorrow. And it doesn't matter, because I'm being me today. And I'm being clear about what I want right now. And I'm allowing myself to feel all of the feels in the moment of it. And so that kind of circles back to 
without that friction because I've never in the past I've avoided friction I've avoided being disagreeable I've avoided being the kind of person who would put my needs out there and what that led to was a lot of harmony and peace but it led to the relationship equivalent of desert plains um maybe not I mean a really it's, it's not like they were infertile plains of you know like no beauty but there wasn't a lot of diversity in the emotional ecosystem that was those relationships. It was just, yeah, it's lovely and harmonious. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of growth. There wasn't a lot of, it wasn't very interesting. But now, because I'm letting that friction come into the fold, just like with, you know, the way in which you've got earthquakes and fires when they're allowed to be a part of the process, the landscape becomes more interesting and far lovelier. And yeah, maybe a little less stable, but far more worthwhile in terms of wanting to remain in that space. And that's what's now happening on an emotional level for myself is, oh, when I allow friction to be a part of the process of my everyday world, whether it's in a relationship, romantic or platonic, whether it's in the way that I engage in the world in my community or in my job, or when I think about politics and my willingness to see the value in conflict even if it means the destruction of institutions that I cherish. It's like, well, can I now move through the world with enough adaptability and enough like detachment to, to say, you know, I, I, I can't control any of this, but I can have some measure of influence by virtue of being honest and real. And so can I, it's going to be adaptable enough to pivot when I need to, but firm enough to be clear with the people around me so that they know where they stand. Am I being clear and kind? Sort of like in the last uh, episode where I said, you know, is it honest? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Honesty is great, but honesty can lead to friction. Are you willing to engage in that heat? Because if you are, you may find something beautiful come forth from it. Okay, that's all I have to say about friction. (laughs) Anyway... Um, in terms of a little bit of like the logistics, as always, if ever you have questions, thoughts, want to dive in more into any of this, don't ever hesitate to reach out. You can email me, Leah at The Healthy Sensitive. Uh, if you want to take a look at some of the new course offerings that I've got, you can go to www.thehealthysensitive.com and uh, you can go to my membership site through that page. If you become a member, it's a fabulous way to support the podcast and all of the content that gets created. Um, so many, many thank yous to those who want to join. Uh, And there's multiple tiers. So go ahead and take a look there. And that, oh, and of course, anyone who's interested in coaching, you can also reach out to me, Leah, at thehealthysensitive.com. That is all I have to say about that. Have a fabulous day, fabulous week. I will catch you next week. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) 